This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Opposite me on this week's panel, we have sketch writer and diarist Patrick Kidd talking political insults, columnist Jenny Russell on understanding Europe, and Isabel Hardman, assistant editor of The Spectator and Times columnist, asks whether where you live can make you fat. We start with Patrick Kidd. Marco Rubio is a big-eared, sweaty robot with a water addiction, while Donald Trump is a stubby-fingered, orange-faced pants sweater with a dodgy hairdo. Meanwhile, David Cameron makes your mum jokes at Jeremy Corbyn, and Labour MPs are still making piggy noises at the Prime Minister. Do playground insults demean politics, or are they what's actually needed to get Joe Public interested? Oh, I think I know what my mother would say. I think she'd look across the dispatch box and she'd say, put on a proper suit, do up your tie, and sing the national anthem. So, Patrick, this is all because of what David Cameron said about Jeremy Corbyn's clothes at PMQs last week. Well, no, yes, indeed, part of that, and also that the American election has got suddenly very dirty. It is quite fun. Donald Trump has been bloviating, as they say, for quite some time in his way. And finally, Marco Rubio has started fighting back. And uh, he's said, you've got small hands and stubby fingers. You've got ridiculous hair. The only reason you have a mirror in your dressing room is so you can see whether you've wet yourself before you go on stage. And assorted comments like that. In return, Trump has said that Rubio has got big ears, cakes on makeup uh, and drinks water far too much. Actually, insults are nothing new, of course, in politics. And I think they're part of the fun of politics. Maybe I'd think that it is my job to write rude things about politicians. But going right back to... Well, I've got some quotes here from Cicero, the, the, the sort of the primus um, politician, speaking about rivals like uh, Catiline. He, he says, you surround yourself with adulterers and filthy-minded lechers and dainty effeminate boys who not only sing and dance but stab and poison each other. Then about another rival, Piso, he said, you've got bad teeth, you've got hairy cheeks, you are drunk and a lecher, you spend so much time in the pub, but no one can tell whether you spend more of it drinking, vomiting or pissing. And that was not just <laughs> something he said off the off the top of his head he then went and published this and (laughs) and perhaps even made it more part of his shtick and what I want to say really is that the insult has a long and proud history in politics and I think that's what gets people interested it forms caricatures people now always think of Donald Trump as the hair they probably now think of Marco Rubio as the sweater and actually if it's getting people talking about them we're always going to think of Norman Tebbit as a semi-trained polecat after Michael Foote referred to him as, as, as that or the, um, the, the line on Michael Foote by Kenneth Baker that he looks like Wurzel Gummidge I think it's fun 
It makes us interested. I agree, and I think it also stops politicians from taking themselves too seriously. We don't want Parliament to be like a sort of Oscars ceremony that goes on for ages with everyone slapping each other on the back and telling each other how wonderful they are. It's part of the sort of the pressure of politics. And some of the insults can be incredibly witty, like Jeremy Corbyn when he was responding to David Cameron's EU Council statement last week. He said that he'd met a number of EU leaders and leaders of other parties. And he said, and one of them said, and suddenly a Tory MP just piped up spontaneously, who are you? And it just summed up his problems beautifully. It fell about, and of course, Corbyn doesn't have a sense of humour. No, he of doesn't his, take it at all. Well. Yeah, as, as Disraeli uh, once said of Gladstone, he has no redeeming defect. Jenny, <laughs> <laughs> what do you make of it? What did you make of the Prime Minister's uh, attack on Corbyn last week, saying that his, his mother would look across the dispatch box and say, put a tie on, smarten yourself up? Do you think do you think people like that? I think it entirely depends whether you're Tory or Labour. I actually didn't like it. I'm I'm all, I'm all for the for the witty put down. I think um, the the Norman Terbit polecat line is almost brilliant. So was um, Geoffrey Howe attacking Margaret Thatcher like being savaged by a dead sheep. Um, I think those those go to real truths about people. I think whether or not um, an insult is effective and whether it resonates entirely depends on the context. I can see that David Cameron thinks it's a good thing to remind people of how hopeless Jeremy Corbyn is politically. But I think that Corbyn made that point himself eloquently by failing to sing the national anthem, by not turning up with a suit. It does come across, because Cameron is such a strong and confident person, as bullying. And I think that at the moment, Jeremy Corbyn looks very frail and fragile in the Commons. I'm not finding it fun watching people attacking him. I think, um, actually, there's quite enough to attack in um, the Labour Party's policies at the moment without attacking Corbyn, the person. So I think you have to be very careful about political insults. I think character matters. And, of course, a lot of these insults go to the heart of character. But I do worry about a general debasement of argument and conversation. I also, I know this is a bit odd, but... I really worry about the tone it sets in public life. How do you tell kids at school, for instance, not to be mm. deeply unpleasant to one another when they're hearing that this is how the people at the highest levels treat one another? How do you, how do you have a civilised society in which people treat one another with courtesy? And without sounding horribly po-faced, if politicians think it's OK to do that... What does that mean for the rest of us? And that's the sort of the John Burko argument, isn't it, when he tries to, to sort of bring order to it. I remember some time ago, John Burko said at PMQs, I get dozens of letters every week from people saying that they don't like the noise. And I thought, what rubbish. So I put an FOI request in asking for the letters. And actually, almost universally, all of them were saying that they hated the noise and well done you for... And now, the sort of person who sits down on a Wednesday afternoon and writes a letter to John Burko is a sort of self-selecting group. But I thought it was interesting that in, in Westminster, there is this idea that everybody loves PMQs and it's all great fun. Uh, and actually, maybe there is that detachment. People don't always well, like it. Well, kind of arguing it to myself. At the same time, I, there have been a few PMQs where nobody's got riled or roused at all, and it's interminably dull, and nobody mm. pays any attention and doesn't get reported. So it's not that I think it should be um, straight and stiff. I just think that the tone has to be carefully judged. There's Perhaps a difference. Wit, wit, not straight yes. insult. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. are absolutely right. I was going to say exactly that thing. There's a difference between wit and bullying. Yes. And I thought David Cameron was diminished by his um, comment about Paul Yeb. Um, not least, his mother is a proper toff. She is the daughter of a baronet and everything. Generally, she she would probably be much more interested in people's ideas than, than their appearance. I'm proper sure she toffs, wouldn't say that to anyone, actually. No, no, she'd, no. she'd be terribly concerned with putting Jeremy Corbyn at his ease and making clear that she thought he was a decent man. Yes. I mean, that's what toffs do. Yes. Pa- Patrick, is it the case that you can basically get away with saying anything as long as it's funny? Well, that was... Actually, that Cameron's thing wasn't really funny. It was just saying to Jeremy Corbyn, you were a bloody mess. Whereas if, yes. if it had been a good joke... 
like like the heckle about who are you or whatever, then it's a good joke, and so you can get away with far more if it is... It doesn't make us laugh, does it? No. There was a decent one yesterday in Defence Questions where Michael Fallon, who is a slightly dry man, but referred to Corbyn's policy or, or idea of having Trident submarines without uh, weapons on, saying you want to turn them into glorified water taxes. <laughs> now, that's just a, quite a good quip, I thought. But you can't say anything... There were, there were some words that, and, and descriptions that are out of order in the Commons, and I, I've written some of them down. Blaggard, gutter snipe, stool pigeon, pipsqueak and git. You can't all... say pipsqueak or gutter snipe. Or I love git. it. Um, <laughs> they, well, they've been ruled out of order in the past. Um, and you obviously also can't call another member a liar, and you can't say that they're drunk. Although, was it Disraeli? I, I think it's often quoted Disraeli that, that he, he referred to to half the cabinet as being crooks and the speaker said you can't say that and he said oh very well then half the cabinet are not crooks <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the thing is just that they add a bit of fun as long as it's not just, just bullying and the joke can end up being on the politician making it in the end because David Cameron often reveals far more about himself when he flings insults across the chamber with a very pink face and he does about the person he's trying to undermine as he did I think with Jeremy Corbyn and as he did with Nadine Dorries when he made a joke about her being extremely frustrated she was absolutely mortified by it but it actually made him look pretty mean yeah, yeah well actually repulsive and made his attitudes look positively repulsive mm. Isabel I think it's up to you and Patrick to run a campaign for MPs wit not insult you know <laughs> <laughs> Set a wit bar and judge them each week. Make them make them feel they've got to yes. work harder. And just one, one last thing on this, of course, it doesn't have to be party political insults. Often blue on blue or red on red insults. And we're uh, getting a lot of blue on blue ones at well, the moment. Well, we are. But some of my favourites are Alan Clark. He, you know, the famous one to Michael Heseltine looks like the sort of man who buys his own furniture. Um, <laughs> about Ken Clark, he referred to him as a podgy puffball. And about John Gummer, he called him a poxy little runt. I think we need a bit more of that during the Eurosceptic versus... Uh, you were file well, argument. As if that's been planned, Patrick. That brings us perfectly on to the issue of Europe. And uh, Jenny, this is uh, a subject that you'd like to tackle. In the last few days, I've been struck by the number of people I've come across who say they want to understand the consequences of leaving or staying in Europe before they decide which way to vote. But those facts are actually hard to come by. There are plenty of grand assertions on both sides, but their truth is hard to judge. And the referendum is going to be won by the side that can make a complex question sound clear and plausible. And neither side has managed that yet. So, so Jenny, how do you think this will will pan out? Because part of the problem with this whole Europe debate is there isn't certainty on one side or the other. No, it's a bit as if we're all walking into an enormous valley filled with fog. And vaguely in the distance, we can see the shapes of something that might or might not be trade agreements or exit or the golden sunshine on the other side if we all have our sovereignty. And the thing is... The role of Europe in our lives is so incredibly complex. None of us has the least idea about what the trade agreements are or how they're constructed or how many clauses there are and whether it will actually take lawyers two years or five years or ten years to disentangle them and set up new ones. So we're all fumbling around depending on whether we like the last person to have said something that we think we might agree with. And that's what it sort of seems to come down to. You've got Boris Johnson now on one side, David Cameron on the other, and it's, sort of, it's a battle of who is the most convincing salesman. I fear that is what it is it's going to come down to, partly because this is an unprecedented situation. Since no country has tried to leave the EU before, we can't be clear what it will be. Also, we don't know how powerful we are in the world economy and on the world stage. On the one hand, you've got some people saying, well, we can make a completely unique agreement with the EU in which mysteriously they're going to give us all the benefits of membership without any of the disadvantages. And on the other, you have people saying Europe's going to be so 
pissed off with us if we walk out like this, that they're just going to fold their arms and say, right, stuff you then, you know. Now now you can have a really unpleasant trade agreement where you don't get to sell anything to us on advantageous terms. And Isabel, one of the issues is that once you get down into some of the detail, it's really boring. People start talking about Article 50 and protocols and SRP and nobody knows what that means and people just completely switch off. It is very difficult to keep people engaged. It's a bit like those Prime Minister's question sessions where both sides just start flinging stats about how many nurses there are at one another and no one really knows what the truth is and no one has time to fact check it so everyone's just flinging stats in quite an unproductive way at one another. I think there's a huge appetite for information about the EU. I was at a public meeting in the Meon Valley which is George Hollingbury's constituency last week and it was on Friday night and it was packed. There were 500 people there and they were completely spellbound for two hours by everyone on the panel apart from me being very passionate about either leaving Europe or staying in Europe. And they weren't fidgeting. And it was absolutely fascinating. They'd and given up their Friday facts. night to come. Yes, lots of facts, lots of debate about whether, you know, all the sort of statistics that you see being flung around. But what I think is really interesting about the political debate is you've got these public meetings where people are doing that sort of thing. But the political debate is as much about who's running a negative campaign and who isn't, because they don't really want to sit around and debate the facts for too long because they know people are going to switch off. So they do a sort of Nicola Sturgeon style move into saying, well, we're the positive ones. We're not Project Fear. And then you've got David Cameron yesterday talking about Project Fact, which is, again, taking us back to the statistics and the warnings. Yeah, absolutely. And then you've also got this issue where the Remain campaign seemed quite happy that the Leave campaign keep talking about Project Fear because it just ingrains the idea that there's something to be frightened of. And yet, yeah. and that's a very thin veneer of a debate as to whether or not it is Project Fear, which has absolutely nothing to do with anything. What do you make of it, Patrick? Is there a way of dealing with the substance without it getting so boring that people turn off? It's, it's very easy to get turned off as soon as anyone says subsidiarity in the comments. <laughs> I have no idea what subsidiarity is. I, I don't even know if it's a good or a bad thing. Is, is it when your house starts sinking? <laughs> Something like that. As we recall this, we have 113 days to go. People who listen to this in a few days' time may, may be getting down towards 100 and it all seem very real, but it still seems a long way off to me. The Prime Minister is going around the country speaking two or three times a week, isn't he? He's basically checked out of government, hasn't he? Yes, well, there's no legislation or anything to worry about. Um, Well, you would if you were him too, wouldn't you? Check out of government at this point. If your entire legacy and your future was dependent on the vote in 113 days' time, you would do nothing else. Well, perhaps, yeah, I I have a gut instinct that the Prime Minister will finish his career having won three referendums and two general elections and having not fought a decent campaign in any of them um, because he's that sort of lucky person. But... I think that's a bit cruel to him. I think he's he's better than you than you're maintaining. I think he's rather effective on the campaign trail when his back's to the wall and he's actually talking in energised fashion. I thought he was very impressive coming straight out of the negotiations with the EU on Friday night, ten days ago. I mean, he came out bouncing with enthusiasm and fervour with lots of strong lines. That's the twenty. 20- Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Three bags of Haribo. <laughs> well, and maybe, was... but, not, but not everybody could do that. Some people would come out looking drawn and exhausted. And he and, took questions for ages. And he took questions mm. for a long time. And he came out as if he'd just spent the day at a health farm and was now longing to see his friends in the press. But he, he doesn't it, have a... Maybe putting energy... Sorry, Matt. Maybe putting energy in, but he doesn't really have any arguments yet. No, I, no I, well, I just, he may not have had arguments, but I thought he came out of that meeting with a lot of strong lines. Like, we've got a special status, um, safer in and out, safer stronger and a better I can't remember them now but at the time I thought he's really been good at conveying a powerful succinct message in statements that people will re- will resonate in people's heads. And he's learnt all of that from Linton Crosby. He's obviously yeah. become obsessed yeah. since the election with scraping the barnacles off the boat with being completely ruthless in your messaging. And he's and right. Yeah he is right. But Linton Crosby has apparently said so it's been reported that actually as we all suspect this is a pretty ropey deal and that why don't you go back and argue some more and, no, and have a well, referendum next year. I don't think that's true. I mean, when, I, when, I've, when I've talked, to, I, I think this is a post facto um, excuse being dreamt up by other people, because when I've talked to those who are present at those meetings in Number 10, they say, this isn't what we remember being said by anybody at all. No. Do you think it's a good deal, though? I think it's a largely irrelevant deal. I think actually the whole story of the EU is this very big question. Where do we see ourselves in the world? With whom do we want to be allied? Do we think that um, the enormous threats that face us globally mean that our exact relationship with the EU is a minor matter which we ought to be able to overcome for the sake of facing up to Russia, ISIS, climate change, migrants and all the other gigantic problems that face us? And that's where if the debate is raised up to those sorts of debate, you know, to, to the level of who should decide our laws and our relationship with the rest of the world that's much more important than whether it's 20 million or 10 million pounds of child benefit which is sent abroad that's that's what they should be discussing they also should be saying what would putin want since we all know that putin is manipulating madly to break up the eu would like nothing better than to have a little splintered europe in which he could pick countries off one by one that's the kind of geopolitical argument we should be making now one thing we've been doing since david cameron got his deal in brussels is i've been asking the panelists every week to predict the outcome of the referendum. So you're allowed two decimal points to predict the percentage of the vote that Remain is going to get. I think it's going to be 60-40 for Remain. 60? You're just having flat 60? Yeah. No no decimal points? Oh, no. No, very good. good. God, I'm beyond decimal points at this time. Very good. Isabel? I was going to say 60-42. Oh, I'm not that enumerate. I'm a journalist. Patrick? <laughs> When you asked this on Twitter, I said 50.1% in oh, favour of Remain and that the Leave camp will say, fair enough, we'll just leave it there. <laughs> um, I reckon it'll be closer than 60-40. Let me say 54-46. 54%. Very good. Well, so far, the panellists average, excluding today, has been 53%. And the people who've contacted us on Twitter average 52%. So there's a sort Matt, of, there's going to be a wisdom of crowds in this. I hope there's going to be a bottle of sh- time champagne for those of us who get closest. Isabel and I would like to split it. And I think you should be offering a bottle of champagne to the listener who gets well, closest. Well, we hope to do that. Uh, I'm I need, just giving away the time I still need, I need, I need to speak. I need to speak to some people in commercial, but I'm sure we can sort that out. But if you do want to uh, join in with this, then you can get in touch on Twitter using the hashtag 
red box sweepstake and just include your percentage in that. And uh, we'll keep adding it to the um, rolling total as uh, we get closer and count down the 100 or more days until June the 23rd. Right, let's move off Europe. And now, Isabel, you want to talk about healthy towns. I do. Simon Stevens wants us to build healthy towns designed to help us live longer and more healthily in our own homes. And what a good idea. Finally, we're starting to think as a society about how to live, age and die well, rather than letting old age be a boring, lonely time. So Simon Stevens is the chief executive of the NHS, NHS England, of yes. NHS England. So he's yeah. he's in charge of the NHS now. It's all been handed over by the Department of Health. And this 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 just talk us through exactly how this is going to work in practice. Ten healthy towns. He wants towns that basically are designed to, to help people live well, more healthily, to be more active, to to move around on their own feet rather than in cars, and also to stay in their homes as they get old and as they have more complex needs as well. And I'm one of these annoying people who's read Being Mortal by Atul Gawande and is slightly evangelical about it, which is it's all about the importance of being able to age well and not being frightened of old age and of building communities where old people are able to stay where they aren't lonely, where they're part of the community rather than just in, in a home. And these towns sound perfect they're also designed to stop people getting fat as well which is also important for old people because if you're obese in old age you have really complex health needs jenny do you think this is a good idea oh i think this is so exciting and i wrote a column on this subject earlier actually in the middle of last year saying we've got to start rethinking our cities and our lives this way because um we've all been living as if we're going to live till we're 80 in perfect health and then, you know, pop off in the middle of the night. And we now know that none of that's true. And the way our cities work is completely ridiculous. Like, this morning I was um, slightly late for the podcast because my tube station has just shut. Why is it shut? Because the two lifts are going to be replaced and they're going to take eight months to do so. There are 92 steps in my tube station and there's a sign saying... Do not use the stairs. There are, there are 92 of them. The sign should read, do use the stairs. There are only 92 of them. It'll help you live longer. <laughs> I mean, it's absolutely insane that for eight months, the station is closed just because they're repairing the lifts. Why don't we as a society just think we have to walk up and down these steps? I mean, all long-lived societies in the world um, are long-lived because, as the researchers say, they lead inconvenient lives. People have to walk, they have to climb, they have to garden, they have to keep active. And I think the more that we can do in our society to make sure that we have to live in ways that keep us close to our neighbours, that allow us to stay in the same place, that make us move and use our bodies, the happier we're all going to be. I'm really excited by this. It's the first time the government's done anything exciting and novel in the health field in the seven years since they got in. Well, I think Six. there's something that's interesting, though, about the fact that it's Simon Stevens, and, and there is a debate in government about how Simon Stevens is the sort of the official who's supposed to be actually the one monitoring the number of cancelled operations and budgets and all that and uh, it's supposed to be Jeremy Hunt the health secretary who does all this big thinking and actually the roles are being completely reversed and that he's Simon Stevens is the one who's doing lots of the big thinking and Jeremy Hunt is the one who's sort of back against the wall about deficits and that sort of thing. Well Jeremy Hunt's got completely diverted by a ridiculous idea that you can run a seven day NHS when the government isn't willing to provide enough money to do four and a half days but I think it's great that um, Stevens is doing this but I wish he'd also start with what actually goes on in hospitals. I spend quite a lot of time in hospitals at the moment and the really striking thing is that you walk into them and you see WH Smith's with 400 confectionery lines and one sandwich. You see Costa Coffee where you can't buy anything that's pure protein, you can't buy proper salads, you can't buy nuts and you sit in A&E and there's nothing there but um, machines producing coke and chocolate and crisps this is the NHS, start right there I think you're absolutely right on that, I would love to see a sort of Marks and Spencers in every hospital for a... Why is and, but, and I will get, get rid of hospital catering actually let people buy their own food or have it subsidised with vouchers or something like that, rather than being given the sort of chips and 
burnt and pizza. White bread and cornflakes, which is what's still being served up everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. This is about once people get into hospitals, once they're acutely ill, once their health problems have developed to, to the extent that they need to be in that building. Actually, these towns are designed to stop people going into hospital in the first place. The idea that it's about health rather than illness. And that's what's really exciting because hospitals are a terrible place to be, not just with the illness you have, but with the illnesses you can acquire there. And also the fact that you deteriorate once you've been hospitalised, once you've been moved away from your own home, particularly in old age. But what about the fact that, I mean, this is, I can't remember the the number of homes you were talking about. Is it a couple of hundred thousand? Yes. I mean, that's not a huge number. How, how do you go about sort of, you basically need to retrofit the rest of the country to make us healthier? Well, I think there's smaller sort of nudge techniques that can be used. And this is an obsession of the current government is the sort of the nudge unit that it, that it set up when it came into power. The idea that actually people can be encouraged to live healthier lifestyles rather than told to live healthier lifestyles, because no one really does as they're told. That's not how we work. We're quite stubborn as people, but being encouraged subtly to do so mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily need a whole new town. No, I was speaking to an, an Australian friend who said that they are very big um, in, in nudging out there towards lifestyle tra- changes. Now, one of the reasons is they have a slightly different healthcare system to us where, although it's not fully privatised, you, you, you pay contributions. And she said when she was young, she had quite bad asthma. And she was told by the doctor, to have such and such a treatment will cost X. But if you change the um, the pillows in your bed so they don't have feathers, if you undergo these allergy tests, if you take up exercise, mm. the cost you pay actually comes right down to nothing. This is sort of bigger than the, <laughs> the time we've got. But actually, if the NHS had ways of incentivising people to and, and rewarding those who, who have better lifestyle, encouraging people to walk more so that they get better tre- treatment... The single quickest thing which the government could do would be to slap enormous taxes on processed food. Everything that we've now begun to understand about the way our bodies work tells us that if you eat processed food, even if it's a lovely, you know, Tesco's finest lasagna, then it contains so many chemicals and so few of the things like raw vegetables and fruits that your body needs to function properly that you're... Um, much more likely to become obese, much more likely to to develop diseases. And the government's totally unwilling to do that because the food lobby is huge and the food industry employs so many people. And yet that is what's killing so many of us. And the the government's obesity strategy was was due at the end of last year, then it was due in the new year, and now it's kicked right beyond the... Well, they're terrified of alienating the electorate, understandably, Mm. because, you know, I walk past a a chocolate machine and I think, oh, wouldn't a Mars bar be delicious? It's very difficult telling, trying to nudge us away from the things that we're driven to want and towards the things that will actually make us happier and healthier in the long run. I suppose ultimately there is a cultural thing here as well, which is that even if you do slap taxes on sugary foods, but we still do like sugary foods and we still sort of, I suppose, encourage one another to, to eat unhealthily and not to exercise. And I think there are changes in, in wider society that are happening completely outside of government. So there's this phenomenon called park run, which is free runs that are five kilometres on a Saturday morning in parks that people just organise. Oh, sounds but, awful. No, it's wonderful. <laughs> but also, it's for people who... It's not aimed at people who are fabulous at running. It's just aimed at normal people. Yeah. And you see lots of people who aren't very good at all at running doing it. And that's a, a cultural change. It's not just sort of strange men in vests running around. It's also mothers with their prams and people with their dogs and that sort of thing. And that's a community shift where people are encouraging one another to exercise for free rather than buying some ludicrously expensive gym membership and it all being very middle class. In just the same way, I was really struck last year when I went to Amsterdam for the first time in my life, I'm sorry to say, by the fact that everybody cycles and everybody's mm-hmm. cycling not in lycra but on proper, comfortable sit-up-and-beg bicycles with nice wide seats which you can cycle on in skirts and you don't have to wear 
proper gear and there are more cyclists than there are cars and it's just what everybody uses to get around now if we could change the culture in britain so that it was easy and you could there were cycle lanes everywhere and taking a bike was the normal method from getting from a to b we'd transform our lives nobody appeared to be fat in amsterdam nobody (laughs) (laughs) that's a good good challenge to go to amsterdam and see if you can find a fat person i was going to say so speaking is the more athletic built member of the panel <laughs> built for comfort rather than speed um yes you know i i would love incentives to to shake off some of, of the lard um i wonder whether adapting isabel's idea we could perhaps have have ice cream vans being paid for by the nhs to drive very slowly around towns with people pursuing them and if well, you catch them presumably driving quite fast around towns would be better because people well, have to run even faster i think five miles an hour is fast enough my only just worry with this whole thing is that we may end up in a situation where those who have money uh, if these become desirable towns therefore the value of the houses in them will go up therefore people who probably have better lifestyles and don't need all this consideration uh, will then move into them and those people in Darlington or whatever who, who eat chips every Friday night aren't going to be changed at all. It's like the problem with short start centres that were often being flooded by concerned middle class parents who actually yes. didn't need them in the way that the parents they were set up for did. Yes. But I, I would, uh, yeah, you know, look at me. I, I need some incentives to lose weight. And I, I, I'm, I'm just not sure where they're putting extra money. Yeah, it's not, it's not the quality of the food I eat. It's the problem. It's the, it's the, it's the, the quantity, quantity. isn't it? <laughs> extra stuff. Well, uh, on that note, we've probably run out of time. You can read all about all the issues we've been discussing on thetimes.co.uk. You can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, so it's delivered to your device every week. And don't forget, I get up early and read all the boring papers, so you don't have to. And you can get my morning email bulletin by signing up at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox forward slash sign up. But for now, from Jenny, Isabel, Patrick and me, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.